Okay, we're in Psalm 41. And uh, we'll begin by reading this short psalm. And I want to ask you how you would outline it after, after we read it. But let's look at the word. So the New American Standard Bible, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, how blessed is he who considers the poor or considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he will be called blessed upon the land. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me and heal my soul. For I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to himself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All those who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him. Then when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemies does not, does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, and you set me in your presence. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. (coughs) Amen and amen. How would you outline it? What would you say? Not everybody at once. I started with the first three verses. Okay. The first three verses, I think that's a good pairing. And most of these address God, don't they? But this emphasizes, how would you describe it? There, boy. I put God's favor. Okay. God's favor, God's protection over those who help the helpless or the poor. Okay? That's a good start. What would you say next? Four to nine? Four to nine is a good break. You might include ten, but but we'll stop at nine. John, how would you title that? A lot there about his enemies. Yes, yes. Um, and mercy. You know, he, he begs for mercy at the beginning of the section in verse four, and then in verse ten. That's why it may it may be. It's hard to know whether they fit them together, but he does speak much of his enemies. He begs God to heal him in the midst of problems and enemies. 
And then he is confident, seems like, the Lord will raise him up. Now, I have not spent a lot of time on most of these psalms talking about what category most put them in. I have found that to be much less useful as we have gone through each of the individual psalms as far as what category you fit it in. But some call this a psalm of thanksgiving. Some call this a psalm of lament. And really the difference is, if you view this as past tense, if his deliverance has come, this is probably an emphasis on thanksgiving. If this is future tense, and he is looking forward to what God is going to do, then it is a matter of he's pouring out his problems and begging God for help in the crisis. It's a it's more of a lament. But just as this ends book one of the Psalms, and it ends with a doxology, it ends with a statement of praise to God as will be true of other psalms in the various books. And we'll look at that in a moment. But verses 1 through 3 are more like a wisdom psalm. They're more like teaching. And it says, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. Do any of you in that first line have the word poor there? Some of you do have the word poor The word poor is there. The word helpless is there. Uh, The first time this word has been used in Psalms, uh, but it is used uh, several times in the Psalms. And it refers to people uh, who are weak and defenseless and who find their hope in God. And it says, How blessed is the one who considers them. Uh, This particular word, considers, that is used in 41 verse 1 is a word that deals with contemplating, uh, thinking uh, about. It is interesting that the object of thinking here is the helpless, the poor, that they're worthy to look at and to learn from, apparently. And a blessed is he who considers him. And obviously he's going to consider him and do something to help his situation. And the one who does something to help his situation. At the end of verse 1, you begin with six lines that describe how the Lord will bless the one who does Consider the helpless. The one who does reflect upon their needs and then come to their aid. Um, Do any of your versions, do any of your versions here in Psalm 41 in verses 1 through 3, the way it's worded here, it says the Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. Do any of your versions have that worded, May the Lord protect him. May the Lord keep him. Any of you have that? None of you have that. Um, it does sound like a prayer. It can be. You know, if if it is to be viewed that way, it is more a request. May the Lord do these things. But most translations word it, 
as a statement just the Lord will do these things. It's still closely associated idea. But as he talks about the one who ponders and considers the helpless, he asks, either he asks God or states that God will bless him in a particular way. When his day of trouble comes, God will deliver him. When his day comes that he needs to protect it, to be protected, God will keep him alive. And he will be blessed upon the land or upon the earth. We may come back to that uh, in a moment. And when he is on his sick bed, he will get well. Some of these things apparently describe the psalmist as we go throughout this particular psalm. It describes himself, particularly that he will sustain him upon his sickbed. But verses 1 through 3, these are not addressed to God in the sense of pouring out his heart to God and praying to God uh, the way much of the rest of the psalm does. But it, it states the blessed person who considers the helpless. Now, again, we'll come back to some of these ideas. But look at verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me and heal my soul. For I have sinned against you. Psalm 41 verse 4. Be gracious to me. That same request will be made in verse 10. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. Here in verse 4, the writer acknowledges sin. Now that's going to come, be important as we think through the psalm. But right now, just notice that he acknowledges his sin. He says, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Heal me. He speaks of forgiveness as healing. Heal my soul, for I have sinned. This is what he says to God. He makes his plea to God to heal my soul, for I've sinned. But his enemies, what are they saying? My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? You know, they just they can't wait for news of his death. When will he die? And verses five through seven to me are a really pitiful picture. For, as you take these passages together, they're coming to visit Him in verse 6. They're visiting Him, they're speaking to Him, but all the time they're collecting information, they're gathering information, going outside and telling it. They're all excited about His approaching demise. And in verse 7, all who hate me whisper together against me. And against me they devise my hurt. They're plotting and planning my hurt. And they're saying in verse 8, this is it. He's going to lie down and he's not going to rise up. Now, there's a lot there. You may think how some of this applies to Jesus as we've been trying to do that in the various Psalms. Have you ever had a, a, a occasion 
or someone was asking you questions, which it could just be, if everything was right, casual conversation. It could have even been a reflection of concern. But you had an idea, pretty clear idea, and a person was just asking you questions to use everything you said against you. The psalmist has this. They even come and visit him while he's sick. And everything he reports about how bad it's going is a cause of glee for the other side. And in verse 5, the idea that his name will perish. His name will perish. Some have suggested that, you you remember in Deuteronomy 25, that if a, a man marries a woman and he dies before having any offspring, that his brother was to marry the woman. His brother was to marry the woman to have a child by her. The child would be considered legally the child of the brother who passed away. And the purpose of all of this law was that his name would not perish. His name would not perish. So that he has an heir. Some believe that the fact that they're hoping that his name is going to perish from the earth may refer not only to his death, but the fact that he leaves behind no descendants. And therefore, the promise in verse 2 that this one who considers the helpless and helps the helpless, that he will be blessed upon the earth or blessed upon the land, What I'm trying to say is it may be if you didn't have an heir, you lose your property, your family line uh, no longer operates on it. And he's come to this conclusion at the beginning of Psalm 41 that he states that the one who considers the helpless will be blessed in the land. He will leave a descendant, in other words. But his enemies are anxious for his demise in verse 5. They are wanting uh, him to his name to perish and they speak falsehood to, to them uh, to him they go out they 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 collect this information in verse 7 all who hate me whisper together against me whisper together against me and they devise my hurt in verse in verse that's verse 7 verse 8 a wicked thing is poured out that when he lies down he will not rise up. And he says in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, most every line of that is important. He has been mistreated by enemies. In verse 5, he uses the word enemies. In verse 11, he uses the word enemy singular because my enemy does not shout in triumph. He has been mistreated by his enemies, but he's even been stabbed in the back by his friends. 
And I thought one writer's statement was interesting when he compared verse 9 to verse 4. In verse 4, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. David expects more mercy from the God against whom he has sinned than he does his closest friend. Now, as we look in verse 9, 41 verse 9, he talks of him as a close friend. A close friend. Some of your translations have a different wording for that. What, what, what all do you have? Familiar. Familiar friend? Familiar friend? Um, what else? What the Hebrew literally says is a man of peace. A man of peace. Now, this particular idea is used a couple of times. It's used in Jeremiah 20 and verse 10. This idiom... Uh, Jeremiah 38, verse 22. John Golden Gay made this point. He said, even if we did not know the rest of the verse, when we see that phrase, close friend or man of peace, it tells us bad things are coming because generally, in those passages, when it's used, someone has disappointed the psalmist. Someone who is close to him has been unfaithful to him. Even my close friend, the man of my peace, my close associate. And he describes it as one whom I trusted. One whom I trusted. Now let me let me ask you a question. And I think if you think about this just a second, even if you haven't been to this class very much, you're going to know the answer. This word for trusted is used quite frequently in the book of Psalms. Quite frequently. Now generally, when this word trusted is used in the book of Psalms, who is the object of our trust? I told you it's going to be easy. Who is the object of our trust in the book of Psalms? God. The Lord God. So God is the object of our trust. Who in this passage was the object of His trust? My close friend, the man of my peace, whom I trusted. The Bible says, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord and cursed is the one who trusts in man. In Jeremiah 17, verses 5-8, through often putting our trust and putting our confidence in people is only going to lead to being disappointed by the man of my peace in whom I trust who ate who ate my bread he ate my bread now it was a sacred thing in that part of the world and and I'm told in the same way by some who traveled there in much of this world even today But it was a sacred thing 
to engage in hospitality together, to share around the table with each other. If you as a person, if you as a guest invited someone into your home, you were in effect telling them that you had good intentions for them and that you would do them good, that you would do them no harm. When you as a guest accepted that invitation, you were saying to the host, that I will do you no harm. And to eat together formed a very important bond. That is why in the Old Testament, often when people engaged in making covenants, they ate meals together. You see that in the case, uh, for example, in Genesis uh, 26, verses 30 and 31 of Isaac and Abimelech. Genesis uh, 26, verses 30 and 31. You see it in Genesis 31 and verse 54, as Jacob and Laban are parting from each other. You see it in Exodus 24, verses 9 to 11, between Israel and God. To eat with someone formed a close bond of friendship and and for someone to, to violate that was considered a horrible thing. Uh, the one chapter book of the Old Testament, Obadiah, has this line in Obadiah verse 7. In Obadiah verse 7, all the men allied with you who will send, will send you forth to the border, and the men uh, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There's no understanding in him. That's Obadiah. Verse 7, they are men allied with you, men at peace with you, men who eat your bread. It is people in this relationship who will do them wrong. In that case, to the people of Edom. But it was a serious thing to eat bread together. And so here, my close friend, my trusted friend, who ate my bread... He, the text said, has lifted his heel against me. He has lifted his heel. Okay. Who, the word heal the Old Testament. Is a play on the name of a character of the Old Testament. Would you know who? You'll know who when you hear it. You'll understand it. But well, Jacob. Remember, he was grabbing Esau's heel when he was born, and but you know the name. Golden Gate translates that has lifted his heel against me. Golden Gate translated it, he has um, acted like a cheat against me. 
Because you remember one time Esau says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's deceived me these two times. He's taken away by birthright, and now he's taken away my blessing. That's Genesis 27, around verses 35 and 36. But the word heal is connected to the Old Testament name for Jacob. Now, what does it mean he's lifted his heel against me? Um, remember in the Old Testament in Joshua 10 verse 24 that often when you defeated an enemy you put your feet upon their neck. You put their feet upon their neck. Is that, is that the meaning? That he has proclaimed victory uh, over me. But David is hurting not only from the fact that his enemies are plotting his demise, but even his closest friend has been among those who have betrayed him. Listen to these words. This is from Psalm 55, Psalm 55, verses uh, verses 12 through 14. It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is a man my my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, who we who had sweet fellowship together, who walked in the house of God in the throng. That was Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. It is my familiar friend who's turned against me. How about verse 20? Of Psalm 55. Go ahead and read it. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. Yes. Yes, very good. Very good. People who are at peace with him, he has turned against them. This this is a sad picture. And if you have ever been betrayed by someone that you put much hope and confidence in, that you shared many secrets with, it is a bitter thing. And um, David has experienced this. But he says in verse 10, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay him. Okay, 41.10, raise is the same word, same Hebrew word that's used in 41.8 and translated rise. His enemies are saying in 41.8, His enemies are saying, He will lie down, He will not rise again. But, in verse 10, He appeals to God, But you, O God, be gracious to me and raise me up. Raise me up. He's asking God to do the very thing that His enemies said will never be done. Raise me up that I may repay them. Does that sound a little unlike the wording of most of these psalms? Um, Some have suggested that just by being raised up off of his deathbed, just by being alive, he's going to show them. As I had a great aunt one time says, 
Yeah, I'm going to live just to spite some people. <laughs> just to show them. <laughs> some who are waiting for my death. I'm going to show them. You know, and, and, and maybe it will be just by his being picked up uh, and raised up from uh, the sickbed that he's going to repay them. That may be the idea. But, but I'll tell you, and only one person that I was looking at made a strong argument for this. And, um, but the word, the word that is used in translated repay is connected with the word used in verse 9, peace or shalom. And one writer translates this. Uh, one writer who, who who knows Hebrew very well uh, translates this in his commentary that raised me up that I might be at peace with them. Now, what I am saying is is just a possibility. I I don't know if that is the best translation. But maybe he is just acting, asking for vindication and not for vindictiveness in this place. Raise me up. But in verse 11, by this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for you... You uphold me in my integrity and you have set me in your presence forever. Now, do you find it interesting in verse 12 that he appeals to his integrity? Why why is that that interesting within the context of the psalm? Because he's he's confessed his sin. He confessed his sin in verse 4. He's confessed his sin in verse 4, but he pleads his integrity in verse 12. Now, is that always inconsistent? I don't think so. Because, yeah, the fact that that anyone can... You know, if, if we were all on trial for how we have lived our life, and Romans 3 kind of presents life like this, that every mouth may be shut... And that no one, you know, ever, the evidence is presented and we're all guilty and we're all sinners before God. And so in a certain sense, when we all stand and give an account for our lives, we are guilty. No questions about it. And yet, does that mean that we're guilty of every wrong that we've ever been accused of? It may be that in the process of all of these enemies speaking against him, there have been things said against him that are not true at all. And he appeals to his integrity while at the same time earlier acknowledging his sin. But he closes this book in in, in this psalm and book one of the psalms. And we're not exactly sure when that division was made. But uh, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever, um, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Now... Let's look at this just a second. Who remembers... Let's see how prepared you are for the test, people. Who remembers the books of the Psalms? We've got books one, one... Book one is 1 through 41. 
book two, I'll help you out. It starts with Psalm 42. And it will go through what? 71. 72. Close, but it would be absolutely wrong on the test. Okay, book three. Book three. Uh, what goes here? 73. 73. Yeah, right. 73. What? 89. 89, yes. And then, book four. Psalm 92. 106. 106. Now, uh, boy, you should know this one because this was stated this morning in the class that, that book... Five of the Psalms stops starts with one oh seven. You knew that, didn't you? One fifty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the one fifty, right? Right. Good point. It's hard to sneak much past this crowd, but this is. We don't know how when all this division was made, but I do want you to know. I do want you to see like how these sections end. Look at forty one thirteen, and let's read it again. Blessed be, uh, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now look at Psalm 72. Psalm 72. In Psalm 72, verses 18 through 20, the text says... Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be His glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. In Psalm 89, Psalm 89, in verse 52, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, verse 48. The Bible says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, and praise the Lord. Now, all of Psalms 146 to 150 have an inclusio. They begin and end with the same words. They begin with the words, praise the Lord, and end with the words, praise the Lord. They begin and end with those same words. So really, in a sense, this this building up to praise with which these books of the Psalms end reaches its greatest climax in book 5 of the Psalms uh, as you see the last five Psalms dedicated to praising the Lord forever and ever. The Hebrew title of this book means praises. It means praises even though the dominant type of song is not praise but lament, pouring out problems, pouring out grief. And that's particularly true in book one of the Psalms as they have poured out problems and poured out grief. They end in praise All of the Psalms are moving from lament to praise. And human history is moving from lament to praise. Now we are in a veil of sorrow and sin and death. But one day that will give 
forth. It will burst forth in praise and we will say, Blessed be the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And as as some have stated theology, which properly means the study of God, and I know we apply it uh, a little bit broader, but theology leads to doxology, which is the praise of God. The study of God leads to the praise of God. We lift up His name. Any questions you had specifically on that text of Psalm 41 before we... It seems like to me that the closing of the psalm would say that this is already for these things that he's talked about at first are already in the future. Yeah, there is a little question. Um, Many interpret these as being past tense. He's already been delivered. It may be verses 1 through 3 were written at the very end as as his concluding remarks on the basis of his experience in verses 4 through 13. But, but it is difficult to tell whether he's talking about a past deliverance or whether he's talking about a present crisis. It's hard to tell. Now, I, I would say this, though, to, to say a few things about book 1, whenever that was divided. Remember, Psalm 1 ended, Psalm 1 started with a beatitude. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the seat of the sinful, etc. And then Psalm 41 opens in the same way with a beatitude. Here, blessed is the one who considers the poor. So both the first psalm in this section and the second psalm uh, dealt with... um, uh, uh, a beatitude. Then you have in Psalm 1 verse 2, um, the blessed man of delights in the law of the Lord day and night. He delights in God's law. That same word for delight, I believe it's the word... Um, he delights in the law of the Lord is used in 41.11 when he says that he knows that the Lord delights in him by giving him deliverance. The one who delights in God's law, God will ultimately delight in him. Um, that's just a couple of things. We could probably go into more depth with that. When you think of how Jesus fulfills this psalm, what do you think of? Okay, look at John 13. John 13. Okay, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He's telling them about who is greater, the one who reclines at table, the one who serves. 
but I am among you as one who serves. 